You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Good morning, church family. I'm a wreck already. Good morning, church family. Can we say that together? Good morning. Oh, man. So good to be with you. My wife is right over there. Danielle's well. Good to see all of you. Welcome to everyone joining us via the live stream as well. It is a joy to be able to gather and to do so on Pentecost Sunday of all days as well. Um, How appropriate for us to consider the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on that day. Even here in Revelation 2, as you just heard read, there's that refrain, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Starting this Sunday, you probably noticed on the way in, getting your um, communion cup ready, that we are going to be uh, celebrating communion on a weekly basis. And that is to remember and to celebrate all that Jesus has done for you and for me. Kind of, a, kind of an experiment over the summer, too, and also one thing that I can think of nothing more unifying for us to do as a church than to celebrate communion together, uh, as well as knowing that there's limited options for people to be able to attend uh, to, to provide every opportunity for, for our entire church to be able to celebrate communion together. So as we prepare our hearts to receive the food of God's holy word this morning, let us also prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table here in a few moments. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you this morning overwhelmed by your presence and grace. Thank you for this opportunity to gather once more as a body of Christ. And pray that we would long remember that yearning to be with your people. May our love not grow cold. Father, we pray that you would continue working peace, peace in our hearts, peace in this world, peace in the Middle East between Israel and Palestine. Father, would you alleviate the suffering that is taking place in India right now? We, we cry out to you, God, how long, O oh Lord, will this, will this virus continue? Lord, we lift up our own community, our own nation to you. Father, would you heal those fractures? Would you bridge those chasms that seem so wide? Father, we lift up our students to you as they finish this semester. God, help them to finish well. We rejoice together in being able to gather once more. Would you refresh our love, O Lord, for you and for one another and for our neighbor. Holy Spirit, come. Illumine God's word. Magnify Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Over the past several months, we have been exploring this magnificent church in Ephesus. We've witnessed the birth of the church in Acts 18 through 20, and it's called God's Gracious Gospel. And then we looked at the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus in a series called Unity in Christ, looking at the cosmic, cosmic unity that we have with Christ, with God because of what Christ has done, and then the collective unity that we have with one another because of the cross. 
And so as we, as we wrap up this look at this church, there's no better place for us to look than in Revelation 2. Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. And it is there that we find this challenge to the church in Ephesus. This challenge among these letters that are written to these churches. This message that I'm calling your first love. I don't know about you, but it seems like letter writing is a dying art. Does anybody get that feeling? Some of the best letters I wrote were probably while deployed with the army. Even used like army letterhead. Who does that kind of thing anymore, you know? I was thinking, though, about, uh, I think there was definitely a, a step backward in some of my early correspondence with my wife, Danielle, because a lot of our relationship blossomed over AOL Instant Messenger. <laughs> Can I get a witness? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Those strange looks. Do I need to switch? Okay. Those strange looks, it's okay. Uh, we'll explain it to you later if you want. But pretty much the precursor to what is Slack, I guess, today. But These letters, though, written are in Revelation here are some of the most powerful and poignant in all of Scripture. And they directly address the joys and the struggles of the seven churches here. But together they provide a a unified and a timeless message that I believe every church needs to hear. The letter to the church in Ephesus speaks to any local congregation, ours included. And Christ's message conveyed through the Spirit reveals that he is intimately aware of what is happening in the life of his churches, in the life of of the hearts of his people, and in the life of his bride. This letter brings encouragement and challenge, comfort and hope all rolled into one. And it's a reminder that, yeah, yes, there has never been a perfect church. And yet Christ does not give up on his bride. He who has an ear, does everybody have an ear? He who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In our time together this morning in Revelation 2, 1 through 7, we're going to look at seven C's. Not the seven seas, I'm sorry to disappoint kids, especially if we're not going to go on a pirate journey or anything like that, but seven seas, each of these actually are demonstrated to a, a greater or lesser degree in all of the letters to the church. It's almost a, almost a formula that is given to us, but these seven seas, you can follow along actually in the Church Center app, it's all, all in there as well, but commission, commendation, criticism, call, caution, command, and challenge. So let's begin with Christ's, Christ commissions the letter to the church in Ephesus and reveals his character. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The identity of this angel of the church in Ephesus has been heavily debated, but perhaps the best explanation is that this This angel is both the guardian of this church and the representative of the Ephesian church as well. So Christ sends this letter to the Ephesian church as a whole through the angel. And the ancient city of Ephesus, as we've kind of explored in this series too, is the the fourth largest city in in the Roman Empire. It was known as a center of transportation and of trade, um, of the administration of government, and also of religion. In fact, the the magnificent temple to Artemis was located in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
It is in this setting that the church was pioneered by Priscilla, Aquila, Paul, and Apollos. We see that in Acts 18 through 20. Paul spent three, three years with this dear church, and he used that church as a base of operations and then reaching into the Gentile world throughout the province of Asia. These churches that are actually those that are then written to here in Revelation chapter 2. So the church here in Ephesus became the mother church to, to these churches throughout that province. So it makes sense that Ephesus would be addressed first, the, ter- the church in Ephesus would be addressed first. I'm reminded of how God has used EBF, this local body, to plant transformational churches for the glory of God. Churches like Trinity Church in St. Paul, City Church of Gainesville, Agape Church, Agape Chicago and Chicago Gospel Fellowship. I just a couple weeks ago had the opportunity to have lunch with Tim Ophis and Jeremiah Vaught. They send greetings, by the way, to EBF, but it was a joy. It filled my heart to hear how the gospel is going forward in those congregations and that wit- those witnesses that are there that were not before, partly because of your self-giving and self-sacrifice. Well, in the rest of verse one, Christ describes himself with aspects of his character that are particularly relevant to that church, to this church. He is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he who walks among the seven golden lampstands. These are actually drawn from the previous vision of the Son of Man that is in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. A couple highlights. If you look at verse 12, verses 12 and 13, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Look down at verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And then in verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Did you catch that? The seven stars are the angels of these churches. Jesus, as described in Revelation 2, 1, has a firm grasp on them. His sustaining power is with them. His personal presence is with them as he walks among the lampstands. He is in the midst of them, and he is intimately aware of the details of their lives and of the church. I know a number of us at EBF uh, rent a place to stay. We're among the renters right now, too. And I, I don't know if this is your current experience or maybe an experience you've had before, but uh, sometimes we've had to deal with landlords who maybe don't live close by, don't seem all that responsive, don't seem all that keenly interested in like fixing some of the things that go wrong in that location. Church, Jesus is not an absentee landlord. Jesus is not an absentee landlord. His sustaining power is with his church. His personal presence is with his church. He is present among his people. He is watching over his people, and he is holding his people accountable, as we will see as well. Here's the second C. Christ commends the church in Ephesus for its orthodoxy and its endurance. Look particularly at verses 2 and 3. I know your works. 
your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. When Christ says, I know your works, it's not just a a simple knowledge, it is a an intimate awareness of their lives and their actions. He knows their hearts. All, all is laid bare before him. Their works are both their hard work. Did you catch that? Their hard work and their refusal to quit. Their doctrinal vigilance as well as their faithful endurance. In terms of overcoming false teachers, they are living up to how Paul had charged them previously, especially the elders in in uh, Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 32, when he charged them or reminded them that fierce wolves would come in among them, not sparing the flock. And then, in, the, and then in Ephesians itself, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, he charges them with the fact that they need to remain steadfast in the midst of every wind of doctrine that would come their way. Evidently, though, here, In Ephesus, some had been claiming to be a part of this larger ring of apostles, this larger band. And so knowing the word and vigilant to guard sound doctrine, the Ephesians were able to spot that false teaching. They were able to then expose, not only find those claims to be false, but then to expose them for who they really are. Ephesus would later have the reputation of not tolerating false teachers, according to Ignatius. It is quite possible, too, that the Nicolaitans that are described in verse 6 are another example of a group they found to be false. Verse 6 says this, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Not a whole lot is known about this particular group. It could have had its origin in, in Nicholas that's described in Acts 6 verse 5, but they evidently taught that some amount of immorality was okay and encouraged some, some sort of participation in idolatry. The pull would have been significant in a place like Ephesus that was known as the temple warden to the great temple of Artemis. But the Ephesians spotted and refuted this error, even hating their works. In addition to this, in addition to this doctrinal vigilance, they also demonstrated their faithful endurance in the face of opposition, opposition perhaps in the form of those false teachings, but perhaps in the face of external threats that they faced as well. And by adding this phrase, for my name's sake, for my name's sake, it is an emphasis of standing with and up for Christ in the middle of persecution and false teaching. In bridging this text to where we are today, I think it's important for us to ask a question like, how much does this situation face our church? Not only in this letter, but then also in the other letters to the churches, what are the the strengths that we can maximize and what are the weaknesses that we need to minimize? For us to continue guarding the faith, we must know the truth. In, able to, in, in order to fall spothood. May we be a church that continues to guard the faith and faithfully endure for the sake of Christ. May we be like the Berean Christians who search the Scriptures daily, as Acts 17 says, search the Scriptures daily 
to see if these things were true. I'm giving all of us full license. Don't just take my word for it. Search the scriptures daily to see if these things are true. You know, within our our movement, the Evangelical Free Church of America, there is a particular phrase that's been used over the years. I don't know even how far back it goes, but it's, where stands it written? That sounds a little Yoda-ish, I guess, in the way that's phrased, but where stands it written was a way of saying, show me, show me in Scripture how you can back up that particular, that particular belief or practice. It's like our, neighbors, our neighboring state of Missouri, show me state, or Missouri. I've heard some people call it Missouri. We don't say that, do we? Please help. No, we don't. Okay, good. Just making sure. I went to basic training in Missouri, so I call it misery, but uh, I digress. But we need to have that same attitude. Show me in Scripture how you can back up that particular faith or that particular belief or practice. 1 John 4, 1 also says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Likewise, may we faithfully endure for the sake of the name. This might mean bearing up in the face of false teaching. It may mean not growing weary when faced with opposition for our faith in Jesus Christ as well. But while the church in Ephesus had definitely had a lot going for it, as we will soon see, it had a nearly fatal flaw. Christ criticizes the church in Ephesus for abandoning their first love, verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. This phrase, but I have this against you, introduces the spiritual problem within the church and signals Christ's displeasure. It also is a warning, I think, of future judgment if they do not reverse course. The rebuke that Christ gives is that they have abandoned the love they had at first. Other translations say they have abandoned their first love. And this is not so much a a ranking of love so much as as it is a description of the love they were once uh, characterized with, the love that they had before. They have abandoned the love that they are that originally characterized their lives. It doesn't mean that they were unbelievers or or had no love at all. No, rather, it was that their love had grown cold. What does this love refer to? It's, It's sometimes debated, but I believe that it is both a love for Christ as well as a love for our fellow image bearers. In fact, The love of Christ is on display in the very end of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 6, verse 24, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I think we're meant to see in the very end of Ephesians and then the the warning that's given here in Revelation, this tying of the two together. Their love has become corrupted. And what's more, that loving of others is reinforced in Ephesians 5, verse 2, and walk in love. Dear church, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. In the end, I believe it is probably both love for Christ and love for our neighbor that are closely tied in the rest of Scripture as well. So, for example, in in Matthew 22, the great commandment is to both love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. 
These two loves are intertwined in 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. For many of us, we can look back on when we first came to faith in Jesus Christ. Remember that time, the blossoming of that love, as well as perhaps the time when you had the most evangelistic zeal in your life as well. Wanting everyone around us to know about the God who saves. The rebuke that Jesus gives is meant to stir in our hearts a remembrance and a longing for the love when Jesus first met us and when he saved us. It is, a, it is possible for a commitment to the truth to wander into a cold orthodoxy. And it is possible for a goal to endure to become kind of a callous, weighted out sort of a mentality. Doctrinal purity and faithful endurance are inadequate without love. That is why one of our ethos statements as a church is humble orthodoxy. We firmly hold to the truth while gently and lovingly proclaiming it. Do we love truth at times? Do we love truth more than we love God or even one another? In 1 John, love actually becomes a test for orthodoxy. 1 John 2, 9 through 11 says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This sort of cold orthodoxy can also result in perhaps being hardworking in terms of the faith but lacking devotion to Christ. Even in ministry, the temptation is to to manufacture that ministry, to, to operate out of a bag of tricks rather than resting in he who saves. In what is perhaps the most striking parallel passage in all of Scripture to Revelation 2, it's Matthew 24, verses 12 through 14. I encourage you to, to take a look at that at some point this week. But in that passage, Jesus points to the end of the age, and what he does is he connects false prophets arising to the love of many growing cold. Enduring to the end as well as then proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So what's the solution? That's where Christ goes next in this letter to his church. Christ calls the church in Ephesus to remember, repent, and return. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. He calls them to remember this initial enthusiasm and excitement in their Christian life and to not only remember it, but to act upon it. Repentance is both a repudiation of the past as well as a change in lifestyle moving forward. And he calls them to return to the works that they once did, the works that they did at first, that is, their acts of love toward God and one another. Remembering Repenting and returning is essentially a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of action. We too must seriously consider our own situation. Have we abandoned the love that we had at first? Has our love for God and our love for one another grown cold? What will happen if they do not remember, repent, and return? 
Verse 5 continues, Christ cautions the church in Ephesus that the consequences of not repenting are severe. The rest of verse 5 bears that out. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If they would not reverse course, Christ would come to them in judgment, remove perhaps even their identity as a church, and if their lack of love would cause their light to dim, their lamp as a witness to the world would be removed. Thankfully, according to church tradition, the church in Ephesus took this warning to heart. Again, in the writings of Ignatius, this is born, this is born out. They responded positively to this charge and continued not only in their love, but also in their vital witness in the world. A church that has forgotten how to love is in danger of ceasing to be a church. Let me say that again. A church that has forgotten how to love is in danger of ceasing to be a church. We are meant to feel how seriously Christ considers our lack of love. Love is not an additional add-on a customizable feature when you're checking out, you know, your new vehicle or whatever it is. Whether a church like ours maintains a love for God, one another, and our neighbor factors into whether Christ allows us to continue shining as a gospel light at all. This season has has done much to reveal believers' lack of love toward one another through divisions, through arguments, conflict in churches throughout the United States, and yes, even in our own church. Nearly every pastoral colleague I talk to laments and cries out the pain and the conflict that they are experiencing in their midst. Dear church, for our gospel light to continue shining brightly in the Evanston area and beyond, we must return to our first love for God, one another, and our neighbor. Well, in verse 7, we reach this final command and challenge that's given. Christ commands the church in Ephesus to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What a refrain. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is an invitation to hear and to heed God's word spoken through the Holy Spirit. It is an echo of, of the prophets, a prophet like Ezekiel, who said, he who will hear, let him hear. And he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse. Even more so, it is an echo of Christ's words in the gospel when he says, he who, hear, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, Matthew eleven fifteen. But what is perhaps the most striking about this statement here is the summons to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, to the churches. We are invited to read each other's mail, I would not encourage that otherwise, but we are invited to read each other's mail. And that is my challenge to us throughout the next week, is to read all of these letters, the letters to all seven of the churches, and prayerfully ask to what degree our lives and our church reflect the commendations and the condemnations that are represented in those letters. Have you heard the expression, if the shoe fits, wear it? Maybe I'm the only one. <laughs> if, you've, if you've heard that expression before, uh, it basically has to do with accepting a remark or a criticism as applying to us. And so may these encouragements as well as, well as these rebukes in all of these letters be taken to heart. 
May they not fall on deaf ears. Finally, Christ challenges the church in Ephesus to overcome and so receive the promise. The rest of verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That theme of conquering or overcoming is actually one that appears frequently throughout the book of Revelation. It is based on Christ's victory over evil. Christ is the one who has overcome, according to John 16, and the one in whom active trust leads to faithfulness in turbulent times. When humanity fell, we lost access to the tree of life. We were banned from the garden paradise. But those who share in the Lord's victory, those who overcome, are once again granted access both to the garden paradise as well as the tree, the tree of life. Church, here's the bottom line. For us to remain viable as a church and vital in our witness We must heed Christ's command given through the Spirit to embody humble orthodoxy and faithful endurance, as well as love for God and our fellow image bearers, all for the glory of God. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, there is a little more to the story. In fact, there is... You guys are going to find out, maybe you've been noticing this already, a little bit of a nerd alert. I like to dig into some of this stuff, but there is some literary as well as archaeological evidence that the, the massive temple of Artemis in Ephesus was built upon a primitive tree shrine. What's more, the date palm, this particular tree, came to symbolize and depict not only Artemis, but also the city of Ephesus as well. But in the New Testament, the writers use tree to refer to the cross, following in the footsteps of Deuteronomy. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. George Beasley Murray wrote this. He said, Whereas the Ephesian believers once viewed the tree of Artemis as the seat of divine life and the intermediary between that life and human nature, they now learned that life eternal in the paradise of God was theirs through the cross of him who died and rose. They went from eating these dates that were sacred to Artemis to partaking in the tree of life, the fruit of the tree of life. As a fertility goddess, Artemis signified life, but it is only through the cross of Jesus Christ that the tree can produce life, life eternal. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In communion, we remember and we celebrate the new life that God has made possible through the cross of Jesus Christ. The way to the garden paradise is, and the tree of life is through the cross. 
We welcome all followers of Jesus Christ here at EBF. We welcome all followers of Jesus Christ to partake in the Lord's Supper. If you have come to a point in your life where you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, we welcome you. If you are continuing to explore Christianity, or these are maybe some concepts that are new or unfamiliar to you, we encourage you to observe, to seek the Lord, and what happens when God's people gather to remember and celebrate together. Let us pray together. Our Father, we praise your glorious name. We praise you for the riches of your mercy, the greatness of your love, and the extravagance of your grace. We praise you that instead of squashing the rebellion, you acted to save rebels like us. We praise you, O Christ, for willingly going to the cross and giving yourself in love. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.